When you think of American independence in the Revolutionary War, certain documents come to mind. The most famous was drafted by the Continental Congress in 1776, the Declaration of Independence. But there were numerous others. Thomas Paine's popular pamphlet, Common Sense. Patrick Henry's published speech, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. But there was one very important document that's been all but forgotten. The Olive Branch Petition was ratified by Congress on July the 5th, 1775 and sent to King George III of England. It was the colony's last-ditch effort to avert all-out revolt from the British monarchy. With this petition, the colonies tried one final time to extend an olive branch of peace. And yet, sadly for England, George refused to even read the petition. Instead, on August the 23rd, a month later, he signed a proclamation of rebellion against the colonies. It was a declaration of war. Yet the petition served a vital role in the colony's resolve. Their final overture for peace had been rejected. Now their only choice was surrender a revolution. The king's unwillingness to even consider their olive branch showed the colonists that they were past the point of no return. Well, in a sense, this is what happens in Revelation chapter 11. For even in the midst of awful judgments, the lion in heaven, the roaring lamb, still has hopes for peace and for salvation. He wants the rebel planet to repent. And so he extends an olive branch of peace. Not in the form of a petition, but in the ministry of two people. In verse 4, John introduces these two witnesses as the two olive trees standing before the God of the earth. And yet, rather than take heed to the message of these men, the world despises them and wants to kill them. Eventually, they're slaughtered in the streets, and this treason against Christ gets turned into a celebration. And it proves once and for all, it proves to heaven that we are now way past the point of no return. It's time soon for God to bring down the hammer. Well, the events that take place in Revelation chapter 11, they assure us of two truths. First, that God's love for us is incurable. Did you know that? God's love is incurable. You can make God angry. You can grieve God and provoke God. You can even push Him into a corner where He has to judge you And he has to sentence you to your own foolishness. And yet you will never, ever cause God to stop loving you. Never. This chapter proves that. And then the second truth this chapter teaches us is the inevitability of Christ's triumph. For Revelation 11 teaches us that you don't side against Jesus and win. You would think that these initial salvos of judgment that we've been looking at in previous chapters would prove the inevitability of the Lord's victory. The famine and the death and the earthquakes and the meteorites that are poured out on the earth and the tsunamis and the burning mountain, the asteroid falling out of the sky and the locust-like demons that are let loose on the earth from the bottomless pit. All of these things. You could call this God's terrible wake-up call. You would think 
that this would prove that man's efforts to rebel against God are futile. But in chapter 11, we realize that man's rebellion is strong and it's determined. And it doesn't give up easily. Though heaven sees the handwriting on the wall, earth is still brazen. And even when God extends two olive branches, two olive trees, even when God offers peace, a stubborn mankind lashes out at His overtures of grace with venom, and it seals mankind's ultimate fate. That's what happens in chapter 11. This future tragedy that precipitates all this, it occurs in a temple that's yet to be built. And we see this temple in verse 1. The Apostle John sets the stage. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now the revelation was given to John around the year 95 AD. 70 year, or 20 years after the Romans had destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Remember, John had frequented the temple many, many times. As a tot, he had gone to the temple. He had gone and offered sacrifices in the temple. In the temple precincts, Jesus had worked miracles and he had taught the people the truths of God. John had spent many, many days in the temple. You can imagine John's shock when Jesus predicted its destruction. And yet, true to his word, the Romans did come in 70 AD and they toppled the temple. And as Jesus had predicted, not one stone was left upon the other. Yet now, when John gets a glimpse into the future, he sees a new temple. For the last 1,942 years, the Jews have been without a temple. Quite a long time. Currently, their sacred site, Mount Moriah, or what we call the Temple Mount, it houses several Muslim structures. It's assumed that the Islamic Dome of the Rock that dominates the Temple Mount today was built over the foundation slab of the Holy of Holies, the site where the glory of God hovered over the Ark of the Covenant. The temple was God's throne on earth. Apparently, John's vision of the temple is for a time still future. For he sees a temple that's yet to be rebuilt. It's interesting, after the Roman destruction of the Jewish temple, Emperor Hadrian, he replaced the temple with a temple to Jupiter, one of the Roman gods. This meant that a Roman idol now stood where the presence of God had once rested. This was a blasphemy to the Jews. A Jewish revolt took place in 135 AD. A zealot by the name of Bar Kokhba led a guerrilla war against the Roman occupiers. After Rome squashed the uprising, they outlawed the Jews from even entering the city of Jerusalem. It was in the early 4th century when the Roman emperor Constantine became a Christian that his mother Helena came to Jerusalem. She had the pagan temple to Jupiter torn down and she built a church on Mount Moriah. This church stood until the 7th century when the Muslims conquered Jerusalem. And it was in 691 AD that Muhammad's successor, Caliph Omar, built a monument on what he believed was the foundation stone of the Jewish temple. Today this dominates the Jerusalem skyline. The Golden Dome is known as the Mosque of Omar, or the Dome of the Rock. 
Now, though the city of Jerusalem is never mentioned in the Quran, though Muhammad surely never actually visited the city, Islam still claims the Temple Mount as its third most holy site in Islam behind Mecca and Medina. Supposedly, Muhammad had a vision where he rode his horse to heaven. Muslims say his launching pad was the rock that lies under this shiny gold dome. They claim that the four holes in the rock or the horse's four hoof prints. For 1,300 years now, with a brief exception during the Crusades, the Temple Mount has remained under Islamic control until today, until our day. For it was in June 1967, during the famous Six-Day War, that Israeli paratroopers led by General Moshe Dayan, they stormed East Jerusalem and they took control of the Temple Mount. For the first time in nearly 2,000 years, the Jews now had access to their sacred site. In the days following, 200,000 Jews worshipped at this last remaining vestige of their temple. At the piece of the structure that's today called the Wailing Wall. For the first time since 70 AD, the rebuilding of a Jewish temple was now within the realm of possibility. It excited Jews all over the world. Yet sadly, Moshe Dayan, he chose to placate the Arabs by assigning the Muslim religious authority administration over the sacred site. So that today, Jews worship at the Wailing Wall west of the mount. Israeli soldiers patrol the 35-acre platform on top of the mount. But the religious activities that are carried on on the mount itself are all under the control of the Muslim authority the Waqf. Now most days, the Muslims, they open the Temple Mount for tourists. But both Jews and Christians are forbidden from praying or singing or even carrying a Bible onto the Temple Mount. Frankly, I like to defy their authority. (laughs) And I always smuggle my Bible onto the Temple Mount. I usually stick it in my pants right here in the back. Nobody checks it as I go through the security. And I take my Bible right to the Temple Mount and read God's Word where God's temple once stood. I think that's appropriate. But understand, all of this that's going on today is standing in the way of the Jews rebuilding their temple. Several years ago, Orthodox Jewish leader Naaman Kahan, he made this statement. He said, all Jewish history, as far as we are concerned, is one big parenthesis until the temple is returned. Life without the temple is not really living. Understand, this is how the Israelis think. There's strong sentiment in Israel today for a rebuilt temple. Jewish yeshivas are actually training future priests. Several years ago, a group called the Temple Mount Faithful tried in vain to lay a foundation stone on the Temple Mount. Whenever we visit Jerusalem, we always go to the Temple Institute, where Jews today are fashioning the tools and the implements that will be used to offer the sacrifices in this future temple, the temple that John sees in Revelation chapter 11. Former Nazi hunter Zev Golan, speaking on behalf of the Temple Institute, he commented, Our task is to advance the cause of the temple and to prepare for its establishment, not just talk about it. We believe all of our hopes and all of our attempts will cause some activity in the heavens, and with God's help, the day will come soon when we will build the temple. He also stated, 
No one can say how and no one wants to do it by force. But sooner or later, in a week or in a century, it will be done. And we will be ready for it. And I have no doubt that they will be. Understand, logistically, it would be easier for the Jews to build their temple across town. Somewhere over in nice West Jerusalem. But Jewish law is specific. It demands that the temple be built on the parcel that David purchased for that very purpose. Thus, a standoff occurs in Israel today. Jews want to build a temple, but the Muslims sit on the property. If the Jews tried to remove those Muslim shrines, they'd create a jihad, a holy war. Every Muslim nation would attack overnight. Actually, since 1967, there have been multiple attempts by Jewish radicals to blow up those Muslim shrines. In 1983, police arrested 45 Israelis with rifles and with crowbars who planned a raid on the Temple Mount. In 1985, a small group known as the Lifta Band, they snuck onto the Temple Mount with 30 pounds of explosive. They were caught before they could do any damage. In the Gulf War of 1991, Jewish hopes ran high when Iraqi tyrant Saddam Hussein started sending scud missiles over into Israel. The Jews were hoping he'd accidentally blow up the Dome of the Rock. (laughs) Historian Israel Eldad, he stresses the urgencies that Jews feel to build their temple. He says, from David's liberation of Jerusalem until the construction of the temple by Solomon, only one generation passes. So it is with us. When asked what will become of the mosque, Eldad replied, who knows? Perhaps an earthquake. Well, I believe a more creative solution will be found. Notice in verse 1, John is told to measure the temple. But he gets further instructions in verse 2. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. Notice the temple's outer court, John said, was given to the Gentiles. Now, according to both Jewish and Islamic tradition, the Dome of the Rock was built on top of the stone where the Ark of the Covenant sat in the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple. But in March 1983, in an issue of Biblical Archaeology Review, a Hebrew University scholar by the name of Asher Kaufman, he advanced a different theory. He believed that the true site of the Hebrew temple was actually 300 yards north of the Dome of the Rock, directly across from the eastern gate. The Jewish Mishnah said that the priest standing in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement could look through the veil, out the doors, and see the eastern gate, placing it in that location. Now, whenever we go to the Temple Mount, I always like to go to that little gazebo, 300 yards north of the Dome of the Rock. Muslims call it the Dome of the Tablets or the Dome of the Spirits. Both fitting names for the site of the temple. The little cupola that covers the the area there, it sits right above a slab of bedrock. For me, according to my calculations, this is the actual location of the Holy of Holies. I believe this is the foundation stone where the temple sat. One year after my explanation, I walked in and stood on that gazebo, on the bedrock right there under the gazebo. And a guy in our group, he was noticeably uneasy. I knew what he was thinking. You see, he understood the Old Testament. And he also knew that I wasn't a Levitical priest. He knew that. 
And he worried that I might be trespassing on the Holy of Holies. And of course, you know what that meant in the Old Testament. I mean, God would strike you dead if you walked into the Holy of Holies and you were the wrong person at the wrong time. And so the guy, he was looking at me kind of fearful. Matter of fact, I noticed he was keeping his distance. Just in case. That's when I turned him and put him, turned to him and I put him at ease. And I, I said, wait a minute, you have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. And I quoted him Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, seeing that we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Did you know that in Christ we have every right to tread where Jews feared to go? Do you know that? Do you know that in Christ Jesus we could come boldly, we could barrel right up to the throne of grace right now and be accepted by God? Through Jesus Christ we have unlimited access to the Almighty. We can even enter into the temple in heaven right this second and offer up our prayers. For me and my friend, this was a faith-building moment there on the Temple Mount. Well, along with Asher Kaufman, I believe that that little gazebo 300 yards to the northwest of the Dome of the Rock will figure in mightily to future negotiations. If the Jews become convinced that this is the foundation stone of their temple, that would put the Muslim shrine where? In the outer court. Remember Revelation 11, the angel tells John to measure the temple all but what? The outer court. And why? He says it's been given to the Gentiles. Perhaps. This Antichrist, this rider on the white horse we saw back in the first seal, the man who brokers a false peace, will do so by striking a deal allowing for both a Jewish temple and a Muslim mosque side by side. With the developments in Israel today, we can see how the stage is being set for God's two witnesses, for God's last-ditch duo. That's what I like to call them. Well, verse 1 sets the stage, and in verse 2, it sets the time. Of the Gentiles mentioned in verse 1, we're told, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, here's the first mention in Revelation of any kind of timetable. And this harkens back to a famous biblical time frame. If you go back to Daniel chapter 9, God designates 70 weeks of 7 years or 490 years. That are, determined, that are to determine the plight of Jerusalem and the Jews. And God has ambitious objectives for this time frame. He sets it aside, and I quote, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. All God's promises to Israel are going to be completed in this 490 years. Now Daniel 9 goes on to carve up this time frame into two main intervals. The first 483 years and then the last seven year period that is still future. The first 483 years begins when the Persians decree to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem. It concludes with the coming of the Messiah. And this is a fabulous prophecy. I can't go back to Daniel 9 without touching on it. God pinpointed 500 years in advance the very day that our Lord Jesus would come and present himself to the nation Israel. That Persian decree from King Artaxerxes ordered the reconstruction of the temple on March the 14th, 
445 B.C. Now, if you count out 483 years or or 173,880 days to be exact, you will come to the date April the 6th, 32 A.D. Do you realize God predicted 500 years beforehand the exact day that Jesus would ride his donkey into Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd? Well, after the conclusion of that first time period, there's a gap. And this last seven years is marked out for the future. And it's marked out with the same exactness. We're not told when it begins, it's still future, but we do know what will start the clock. This final seven years will begin when a Roman leader signs a treaty with Israel, perhaps the one that allows them to rebuild their temple. It ends seven years later with the consummation of God's plan for this current age, which is surely the second coming of Jesus. In between the midpoint of that last seven years, at the 42-month mark, John tells us that an event will occur in the rebuilt temple that will shape the times. The Roman leader who signs the treaty will betray the Jews. He will desecrate their temple. As the Romans of old, he'll erect an idol in its precincts. It's a blasphemy. As John says, the Gentiles will tread the holy city underfoot for the last half of these seven years or for 42 months. Apparently, the compromises that allow the Jews to build their temple will be replaced with a policy of oppression. Which sets in motion, verse 3, God's last ditch duo, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,000 260 days clothed in sackcloth. 1,260 days, that's just another way to count 42 months or half of seven years. Two witnesses will minister in Jerusalem either for the first half of this great tribulation or for its latter half. These two men will literally be God's dynamic duo. Along with the 144,000 witnesses we saw earlier, And the angels in the heavens, they'll preach God's final offer of salvation. These men will come clothed in sackcloth, not Gucci suits. They oppose all that this materialistic world values. They call the earth to repentance and to faith in Jesus, the true Christ. And of course, this draws the ire of the false Christ. These men are on display They show the world God's insuppressible desire to forgive and to save, not condemn and destroy. They're God's last-ditch call. They're the equivalent of the olive branch petition sent to King George by the American colonies. Their ministry is an expression of God's desire for peace. But it's also proof of the world's decision to rebel. For verse 4 tells us, These are the two olive trees And the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now these two olive trees allude to another passage of scripture in Zechariah chapter 4. There, the prophet Zechariah, he sees two lamps whose light is fueled by a perpetual flow of oil. Each of the two lamps, they draw their olive oil straight from one of the two olive trees. These two trees represent two of Israel's leaders at the time, Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the governor. 
These olive trees represent the power that fueled them. The olive oil flowed. Zechariah 4 verse 6 said, This is the word of the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. This is how all Christian witness gets fueled. By the oil of God's spirit. The two men in Zechariah's day, as well as these two witnesses of the last days, as well as all God's witnesses, even today, are empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you want to be a faithful and effective witness for Jesus Christ, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed how a single candle can light an infinite number of other candles without diminishing its own light or lifespan? Have you ever noticed that? A candle just keeps giving and giving and giving. This is why Revelation chapter 1 referred to all churches as a candlestick or as a lampstand. Christian witness is fueled by the Holy Spirit and that never runs dry. A spirit-filled person is a source that never gives out. There's a perpetual spring of vitality and love and goodness and joy and power running under the surface of a person's life who is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's true of all effective witnesses. And this was true of the dynamic duo in chapter 11. But verse 5 tells us more. It says, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. In other words, these are not your ordinary Christian soldiers. These men are special ops. They're in a secret program called Witness protection. Hey, you know, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my my sake. You know, we're called to have thick skin, even turn the other cheek. That's our calling. Today, the Lord's workers come and go. Yet His work continues But at this crucial crucial juncture in history, these two men, they have no backups. Nobody's on the bench ready to replace them. They can't be struck down until their job is finished. And so God gives them special firepower. They open their mouths and call down fire from heaven on their enemies. Oftentimes between the two services, I'll go back to the bathroom and I'll brush my teeth. I mean, and it's a simple reason for it. I mean, I don't want to be praying with you or talking with you and have a bad case of halitosis. I mean, that's a bad thing. You come down and want to get spiritual help for the pastor and you can barely even listen to the guy because he's breathing this, you know, insecticide on you. <laughs> it's a bad thing. So I usually go back and brush my teeth. But these two witnesses, man, they defend themselves with bad breath. Talk about a lethal case of halitosis. If once someone tries to harm them, they call down fire from heaven. Remember these two men, they're not just two pastors on church business. These are forerunners of judgment. They're more Old Testament prophets than they are New Testament pastors. They're God's last call. As I've said, they're His last ditch duo. They're a warning to the world and they're a witness to Israel. In fact, that bears repeating. These two men have their sights set on Israel. They target the Jews. Remember where they are. They're in Jerusalem. Remember, they're in the temple. This is why their ministry takes on the characteristics that it does. They have a special appeal to the Jews. Verse 6, 
These have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. If you know the Old Testament, you realize torching enemies and shutting off the rains sounds like Elijah. He did both those miracles. Changing water to blood and calling up plagues. That's from Moses' arsenal. It's possible that these two witnesses of Revelation 11 will be guest appearances of Moses and Elijah. And this would be a perfect pair to reach the Jews. That's the point. Moses represented their law while Elijah was their chief prophet. You recall Matthew chapter 17. Jesus climbed to the top of Mount Hermon. He took with him Peter, James, and John. And on the mountaintop, something special happened. We're told his countenance changed. He was transfigured. It was as if his humanity was peeled back so that his glory could peek through. His face shined as bright as the sun. His clothes sparkled white. And guess who appeared alongside him? Moses and Elijah. Two witnesses spoke about his death. Moses and Elijah are accustomed to the lion's roar. Of course, there are all kinds of theories as to the identity of these two witnesses. But who they are is not the point. It's what they do and why that's so strategic. For they are God's last ditch duo. And understand where this phrase last ditch originates. You know, in ancient times when a city or a castle came under attack, you would dig moats or ditches around what it was you were trying to defend. You would would put them in, in outlying circles. Hopefully the enemy was unable to breach the first ditch. But if they got to the last ditch, you were in a desperate situation. You see, anyone who's read Revelation 11 will know that by this time, when these two witnesses appear, judgment is at hand. But God is trying to make one more effort, one more appeal for the world to turn and repent and receive His Son, Jesus. You know, right now, God may also be making a last-ditch effort. We never know. If you die later today, then my my feeble preaching this morning may have been God's last-ditch effort to get to you. Might have been. Here's the policy we all should observe whenever we hear of God's truth and grace. We need to pay attention. When we read Revelation, we sometimes get fixated on the wild and woolly judgments, the asteroids and the locusts and the hailstones. Or maybe we lock in on the cast of characters, the four horsemen or the 144,000 or even these two witnesses. But remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means that every chapter, every scene reveals Jesus. And chapter 11 is no different. For here we see the Lord's heart for His own people. I hope you know, Jesus was Jewish. He was. Yet all too often he's depicted in the arts as some Anglo-Saxon. A red-headed Irishman. There he is. That wasn't Jesus. He was a Jew. It's amazing that in over the 1,000 movies that have been made about Jesus, I can't remember a single movie where he's been actually played by a Jew. And yet here in John chapter 1, verse 11... John speaks of his Lord Jesus. He says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to his own. While on earth, Jesus made it clear that he came first to the Jews, 
then to the Gentiles. His priority was the nation Israel. After the Jews' corporate rejection of Jesus, he then birthed the church. It was then after, after he had tried to reach the Jews, he turned to the Gentiles. Through the church, he opened the door of salvation to all races and tribes and nations, to the Gentile nations and races. And that's his strategy again here in the Great Tribulation. He comes first to the Jews, and then he tries to reach everyone else. Remember, in the eyes of God today, there are three types of people on the earth. There are the Jews, there's the church, and there's the wicked. And he has a plan for all three, even in the great tribulation. After the church is raptured, when we're in heaven, God is going to pour out judgment on the earth. And here's why. He'll do it to punish the wicked, but he'll also do it to purify the Jews. He has a heart for Israel, and he wants to see them saved even to the very end. And what happens next in verse 7 is sure to have a sobering effect. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now, chapter 11, it sets the stage, it sets the time, it sets in motion, it sets their sights on the Jews, and now there's a setup. For suddenly this hellish beast ascends from the bottomless pit. We'll talk about this future ruler more in Revelation chapter 13. We've already seen him. He's the rider on the white horse who brokers the false peace back in chapter 6. Elsewhere in Scripture, he is referred to as the Antichrist. Here, he's a beast who reveals his fangs by taking a bite out of God's two witnesses. Apparently, this beast will have sent out hit squads to harm God's messengers. But God has them in witness protection. It's only now, after their testimony is finished, after their job is done, that God removes their firepower. Actually, this should teach a lesson to you and me. It should be comforting to us. This means that as long as we have work to do for God, we are invincible. Did you know that? Nothing can harm you as long as God has a plan for you. It's God, not the devil, that decides when we die. It's a jungle out there for sure. The beast is on the loose. Just remember that Jesus is the king of the jungle. Verse 8 tells us, after he kills them, their dead bodies, they'll lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. That identifies this city as Jerusalem. The dead bodies of these two witnesses will lie in the same streets through which they drug Jesus' dead body. This city is God's holy city, Jerusalem. And yet what strange nicknames for a supposedly holy city. Sodom. Sodom was notorious for immorality and sexual perversion. Egypt. It was the hotbed for idolatry and spiritual perversion. Hey, Jerusalem is holy in name only. Last time I was in Jerusalem, I was walking through the streets of the old city with Stephanie. She was right next to me. And this little Arab kid, she comes running right around the corner, and he jumps right up, spits right in my face, and then runs right out. I thought, wow, I'm in the holy city. <laughs> That's what people will think when they see the blood of these witnesses turn the streets red. This is a holy city? 
Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. The beast, the self-proclaimed king of Jerusalem, he keeps the bodies on ice as an example to everyone who dares to call for repentance and faith. He uses their corpses as a global deterrent. The three and a half days may speak, may commemorate his own three and a half year reign. But notice the technology this anticipates. We're told all the nations will see their dead bodies. How can all the people in the earth see something at, the, at one time? Well, we know this today, but prior to 1962 in the first satellite television broadcast, this was an impossibility. How could this be? Today we got CNN Live. That's why I showed you. That's why we logged on earlier to the Wailing Wall webcast. Just a few minutes ago, we saw the general vicinity where these corpses are going to lie. There's now a 24-hour picture streaming continuously over the internet for where these two witnesses are going to lie, and all the earth is going to see them. And along with the Antichrist, in verse 10, we get an anti-Christmas. How about that? And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Once I saw a Christmas card. Christmas card now. They depicted a happy family. They were all around the Christmas tree. They were exchanging gifts with one another. And the caption of the card read, Make merry and send gifts to one another. Quoted Revelation 11 verse 10. Now the quote was accurate, but the context was a little off. I mean, here God's servants are murdered in the streets, possibly in the temple. And people around the world go caroling and drink eggnog and exchange gifts. It's the anti-Christmas for an anti-Christ world. And here's why they celebrate. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They tormented those on the earth. The faithfulness of these two men tortured the souls of all men. You see, God's two witnesses, what are they going to do? They're just going to witness to the truth. They're just going to tell people that, that marriage is between one man and one woman. And they're going to tell people that human life begins at conception and abortion is, is murder. And they're going to tell people that the only way to God is through Jesus. And that Islam is a false religion. And that all paths don't lead to God. That's all they're going to do. They're just going to tell people that the Bible is more important than their opinion. And that morality isn't open to everyone's private interpretation. They're just going to witness to the truth. But what's going to happen? Man, these positions are hated today. How much more so will they be hated in the future? They will torture men's souls with the truth. And it will cause the death of God's two servants. What a stark contrast between God and man here. It's obvious there's a disconnect. I mean, God is making this last-ditch effort to extend His peace, to show His love, to bring man back, to establish a peace, to offer forgiveness. And what does man do? He murders the messengers. And then He celebrates their demise and their own rebellion. There's a disconnect, all right. Imagine. There's a disconnect, all right. Call it sin. 
Imagine, Antichrist is throwing a party. The world is tuned in. It's now Times Square on New Year's Eve. Everybody's glass is raised. It's time for a toast. When suddenly the camera, it spins and it pans and focuses on those corpses of the two dead witnesses. And verse 11 tells us, Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Imagine, Wolf Blitzer, live from Jerusalem. I mean, then suddenly two corpses stand on their own feet. Old Wolf will swallow his microphone. The world was at a party, hoping to see the apple drop. Instead, God warns them that the hammer's about to fall. He raises up these two witnesses, and the result, and a great fear fell on those who saw them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. I mean, this is going to force Diane Sawyer to even sober up. Verse 13, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Man, the lion is going to shake up Jerusalem in a couple of ways, figuratively. Jesus is going to put the fear of God in the Jews when he raises these two witnesses from the dead. And literally, the lion of Judah will rock this city with an earthquake. If you've ever been to the old city of Jerusalem, you've seen the tight quarters. Imagine when those walls start to crumble and those roofs cave in. It'll be devastating. And yet this is what it's going to take for many of the Jews to be saved. Remember, the ministry of the two witnesses is targeted toward Israel. During the Great Tribulation, a vast spiritual awakening will occur among the Israelis they'll suddenly see that the Antichrist, that person whom, who they signed this treaty with, that person that they've trusted, that he's a false Christ. It, their error will suddenly be obvious to them. And they'll consider Jesus. You know, Paul predicted this in Romans 11, verse 26. There he foresaw that in the end, all Israel will be saved. Every Jew alive at the end of the tribulation will embrace Jesus as their Messiah. Zechariah chapter 12 predicts as much. This particular event in Revelation 11 may be the turning point. Well, verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. A seventh trumpet is about to blow. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. It's not that they will become, but they have become. It's a done deal. It's inevitable. You know, in the Greek language, there is a way to speak of future events in the past tense. So that when you hear it, you realize that the person talking has total certainty of the outcome. You say it's Greek to me, but it's proper usage. It speaks of the inevitability of the event described. And that's the language of heaven in verse 14. Heaven is beginning to anticipate the final victory. Oh, the beasts are on the prowl. But it's time now for the king of the jungle to show his superiority and to cage them all. Heaven is gearing up for the final showdown. 
Verse 16, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. Again, it's not just that Jesus will reign. They say he's reigning right now. They realize that he's opened the scroll. He has it in his hand. The title deed to the universe already belongs to Jesus. He did the heavy lifting on the cross. The lion became a lamb. Now all that's left is for him to evict the rebels and repo the planet. In other words, we're getting closer to the end. Here's where we're at in the battle of the ages. The polls have closed, so to speak. Though the results are being tabulated, the exit data is clear. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of Jesus is inevitable. and The world sees it. At least heaven sees it. But don't ex- expect a concession speech from the opposition. Not without some coercion. Verse 18. For the nations were angry. And your wrath has come. You know, here's our problem. I mean, here is this world's problem. You know, it's really your problem and my problem too. None of us like to be told what to do, do we? That's our problem. We don't like to submit to somebody else's authority. We want to call our own shots. Even after the results are in... People refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is one, that Jesus is king, that it's not king me. The sooner you submit to the inevitable, my friend, the better. And after humbling angry nations, there's more to Jesus' to-do list. Read the rest of it in verse 18. The time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, And those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Here's God's to-do list at the end of the age. This is all that Jesus will accomplish. He's going to put the arrogant nations in their place. And then he's going to judge all of those souls that die without Christ. And then he's going to reward God's servants and saints. And then he's going to destroy those whose rebellion caused God to destroy his own creation. How's that for a full day at the office? That's what Jesus is going to do at the end of the age. It's inevitable, don't you know? It's inevitable. Run to Him today and ask for His mercy. The chapter ends with verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple. From beginning to end in Revelation 11, it all revolves around the temple. With the death of God's two witnesses, there's chaos, there's carnage, in the temple on earth, in the Jewish temple. But all is in its proper place in heaven. Heaven's temple is secure. It's orderly. Nothing's changed. God is on the throne. The earth has rebuffed God's last-ditch duo. Now the die is cast. The inevitability of judgment is sinking in. Hey, God's love is forever, but not His pardon. Reject God long enough and He'll honor your decision. And thus in Revelation chapter 11, it closes with a prelude of what's on man's horizon. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. 
And you know, I can pretty much guarantee you that's what's on your horizon as well if you continue to resist Jesus. Nothing but struggle. Nothing but disappointment. Nothing but hurt and pain. Why don't you understand that it's inevitable that Jesus is going to reign. His kingdom will come whether you're ready for it or not. The offer this morning is get ready because He loves you and He always will. But His patience doesn't last forever. And He asks for you to come to Him and repent today. Why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes. For somebody here this morning that would say, I'd like to give my life to Jesus. I never have, but I want to today. Would you raise your hand? Just right now, would you raise your hand? I'd like to pray for you. Great, I see your hand. Anybody else that would say, hey, I'd like to give my life to Jesus today. You know, it's inevitable. One day you are going to bow your knee and you're going to confess Him as Lord. It's inevitable. Man, why not do it today? Why not do it today when His grace is is available and His mercies are free? Why not do it today? Anybody else that would say, yes, I'd like to give my life to Jesus? Would you raise your hand? Yes, great. Father, I pray for those that have raised their hand this morning. Lord, I thank you for them. I thank you that you've touched their heart today. That you've exposed their need. That you've communicated to them that you love them and that you care for them. That's not the problem. The problem is our own stubbornness. Our own sinfulness. And how, how we think we can do it on our own and do it better than you. How arrogant is that? Father, forgive us. I pray that you'll work in our hearts this morning. You'll help those that need to come. I pray that you'll help them to come forward this morning and give their life to you. Give them the courage to step out of their seat and make a public commitment of their life to Jesus. We love you, Lord. We ask that you bless us now in these next few moments. If you raised your hand uh, this morning, or even if you didn't, but you need to come to Jesus, I'd like to pray a prayer with you. I've prayed for you. I'd like to pray with you now. And so as we all stand and as we sing this last song, if you'd like to give your life to Jesus, I'd I'd like to invite you just to slip out of your seat and walk down the aisle. It's not as far as you think it is. You might think it's 10 million miles, but it's not that far. Matter of fact, the first step is the toughest. You take that first step this morning and Jesus will meet you. He'll escort you down. And this morning we'll pray. And you can walk out of here knowing that your sins are forgiven and you're part of God's kingdom. Why don't we all stand? Matt, lead us in a song if you would. And if you need to come forward this morning, I'm asking you to come now.